Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm impressed. I mean, I thought it was going to be like me and about 10 of you. And you're here. I feel like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was preaching in London in the mid-1900s during World War II, and the Germans were bombing London, and the congregation endured. You've endured the storm. So, all right. And if Springer is jumping up in the back, I'll close it down quickly, and we'll shelter in place. How about that? All right. Well, if you have a Bible, open to Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15 is where we find ourselves this morning. As you know, we've been working through this beautiful, just beginning this trek, this journey through this wonderful, magnificent letter of Romans. If you're visiting with us for the first time, that's okay. You're not behind. This text will be self-explanatory. I think in verses 8 through 15 of Romans, Paul gives us, he's still just setting up the letter. Paul gives us a kind of picture, a glimpse into the Christian life. So as you're finding Romans 1, if you don't have a Bible, as always, I'd encourage you to use one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that Bible as our gift to you. I just think you'd be really helped if you had a copy of God's Word for yourself, open, following along. We'll have lots of scriptures on the screen this morning, but, but would love for you to have your copy of God's Word as well. As you're finding that, let me mention that we're going to take a, a two-week break from Romans these next two weeks. I'm going to be gone. I'm leaving this Thursday for India, and I will be with Gareth Franks, our missionary partner there, and a couple of churches there, and doing a conference uh, where we will be uh, really preaching against the, the lies of the prosperity gospel that is so prevalent in that part of the world. So for the next two Sundays, Will will preach next Sunday, Robert the next, they'll likely do two scenes out of the Gospels, and then we'll pick back up in, in Romans um, the second Sunday of February. All right, with that, let me read uh, this text, and let's, let's get into uh, the, the Scripture this morning. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, But thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for this text and thank you for your grace to us. We pray for those and the southeast that have been affected so, so severely by these storms. We pray that you would protect us in the coming hours. Lord, we pray for our time in your word. We thank you that we can freely sing to you and open up your Bible without fear and preach unashamedly the beauties and the mercies and the glories of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. 
I pray that Christians would be stirred in their affection for Jesus more this morning. And I pray that unbelievers in this room, that you, by your sovereign grace, would, would cause them to go from death to life spiritually. We pray for our nation in the transition of power. We thank you for our outgoing president, and we pray for our uh, incoming president, and pray for your grace on him as he leads our nation, and we pray for wisdom. We pray, Lord, for our soldiers overseas that are still at war fighting wicked people. We pray for grace to them. Lord, help us now to focus on this text and to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ as a result of our time together. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So I think Paul in this text gives us, just like I mentioned, a picture into the Christian life. And there's three things that I want us to see. The first is, as we work back through this text, I want us to see that the Christian life is to be a thankful life. The Christian life is a thankful life. Look again at verses 8 through 10. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Let me stop there with that word, first. What's interesting about this usage of the word first is that if you notice, Paul never actually gets to a second. He, he mentions first, and then it's as if the Holy Spirit grabs his mind and he runs on some rabbit trail, and he never comes back around to finish his thought. In fact, that's a, that's a common thing in the letters of Paul. He says first, and then never gets to the second or the third. Paul loses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Think of this now. Paul loses his train of thought. And remember that this is, this is not uh, some sort of official royal decree-like genre of literature. This is a letter. This is a letter from one man to a group of people. And God used a letter to become part of Holy Scripture. Just think about the, the incarnational, the, the ordinariness of that, that God would use a letter where a man starts, gets a brainstorm, says first, and then never gets around to saying second, and that becomes the Holy Scripture. Now, don't be unnerved by that, because we know that even in Paul's rabbit trail, losing his train of thought, diversions, all of that is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in another letter to a young pastor, 2 Timothy chapter 3, about Scripture. He says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. So think about that. The Holy Spirit, through these Bible writers throughout the centuries, over 40 men, hundreds of years between Genesis and the end of the Bible, Revelation, the Holy Spirit is breathing through in the situations and circumstance through the personalities of all of these different people through the centuries that are writing God's word. Peter puts it like this in 2 Peter chapter 1, that men, as they wrote scripture, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is superintending Paul's losing his train of thought to bring about the Bible that we now know of as God's perfect, holy, infallible word. Paul says first, and he never gets around to a second. I'm just struck by that. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones was struck by that as well. Um, I got such a kick out of reading uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' thoughts on this word first, on his commentary on Romans. He preached through Romans uh, in London 
366 sermons. We won't go that long. Don't worry. But listen to what Lloyd-Jones, this book is basically a transcription of his verbal sermon back in the 1960s. This is what he says about just that word first, how Paul loses his train of thought, and he glories in it. Listen to this. I wonder whether the greatest trouble in the Christian church today, and let me say it with fear and trembling, even among Christians, is that we are slaves to decorum. We are so polite. We are so dignified. We are so nice. We are so afraid, it seems to me, that the Holy Spirit may suddenly descend upon us and that some of us will be beside ourselves almost because that sort of thing happens in revivals, you know. And let's remember that who's writing this? A stoic Welshman preaching in London in the mid-1900s. Your programs are forgotten. The meeting doesn't stop at the precise second. When the Holy Spirit comes in, it may go on all night. Don't worry, this one won't unless something crazy happens. And we are not conscious of time. Let us beware, Christian people, lest we pay so much attention to the form that the modern church may, as it were, die of dignity and fail to be an instrument in the hands of the living God. This man, speaking of Paul, was never in that danger. First and no second, loose ends galore. He forgets it all. He is filled with the Spirit, and the truth is burning within him, and out it comes. It is all there. But the epistles of this man are not beautiful epistles. They are massive. They are dynamite. They are volcanoes hurling out their great power. Thank God, I say, for a man who says first and forgets to say second and third. Praise God. Give it to us, doctor. Now, if you're one of those type of people that has been bringing a tambourine in your purse, just waiting for the right time, this is not a license for you to go crazy while I'm preaching. But let's revel in the fact that God moves upon us and it produces an inspired letter that becomes part of the Bible where Paul says first and he never gets around to second. Praise God for volcanoes that erupt out of the hearts of men that God uses to write his Bible. I'm, I'm apparently just more thrilled with that than you are. First and no second. But let's follow Paul's train of thinking here, his line of thinking in this text as we think about the Christian life being a thankful life. First, he starts off, he says, first I thank my God. Paul's perception of God clearly was that he was a personal God. He's not this distant deity. He's not like athletes after the game that attribute their performance or their victory to the man upstairs. Come on. He's talking about my God. God was with his people in the garden. This is the promise of the Old Testament, the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. I won't take time to read it, but the prophet says that the promise that is coming is that God will be with his people and they will know him and he will write his law in their hearts. We see in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 when the, the angel is speaking about Jesus and he's referring back to the text in Isaiah that's speaking prophetically about Jesus and it says of Jesus that behold his name shall be called Emmanuel which is God with us. God desires to be with his people and Paul 
gets that here. He's saying, my God. In Revelation 21, at the end of the Bible, listen to how everything ends in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This is John the Apostle writing about his vision of the future. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. My God, Paul says. That's the first Heart cry of a Christian who knows his God and can pray thankfully in the name of his God because his God is, or her God is personal to that person. My God, Paul says. The Bible begins with relationship with my God in the garden. It's severed through sin. It's redeemed through Christ. And it ends with God dwelling with his people. I read an article this past week um, on the Gospel Coalition website that says that um, in America today, inherited faith is dying, but chosen faith, people who truly know their God, is rising, and that the reports of the demise of the church are really, really false. The demise of the church is in areas and churches and church circles and church cultures where faith is merely inherited. Do you know what I mean? Where it's an impersonal. It's like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just kind of there because that's the church I grew up in and it's just a social construct. That's what we do. We go to church on Sundays. That's not what Paul, how he is approaching God here, saying, first, I thank my God. He knows his God. And how does he know his God? He says, I thank my God through Jesus. There's so much theology just in that first half sentence. I thank my God through Jesus, this is how Paul instinctively, even as he's writing just an introduction, knows how he, as an inherently by nature sinful man, the only way that he can approach his God is through his son, Jesus. And friends, therein, just in that half sentence, embedded in that is the good news of the gospel. Paul, knowing himself to be by nature a sinful man, knowing that he is approaching God in prayer, says instinctively that the only way he can do that is through Jesus, his son. The God-man who became a man fully, took on flesh, and laid down his life to bear the wrath of a holy God, rise in victory over it so that he is defeated death, sin, and the grave, and now calls all of us to put our hope not in our own righteousness, but in him, in his son, so that we can be with God. Listen to these scriptures. I'm going to read a whole bunch of them quickly. I want it to be a kind of assault of the gospel on your heart and your head as you think about the reality of the truth that the only way we can approach God is through his son, Jesus the one who is fully God and fully man. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you were born again, that means that you were dead. So you needed to be born again, spiritually speaking. And the way God brings that about is through the resurrection of his son Jesus, who died on the cross to bear our penalty and rose again in victory over it. 1 Peter 3 verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's our sin that separated us from God, made God hostile towards us in his righteous anger and us hostile to God in our disobedience. And Christ did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance by fulfilling it through his righteousness that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two so making peace and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. Who's the hostility between? At its core us and God and Jesus has removed it for all those that are trusting in him and can come to the creator of the universe through him and Paul is just beginning his letter and he is dropping theology on us he's backing up a dump truck of gospel truth and dumping it on us before he even begins friends we're in verse 8 Through Jesus, for your faith, for you because of your faith. And then he says in verse 10, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I don't have time to spend much time on this, but just Paul in his prayers to his personal God through the work of the Son. Friends, that's the gospel. He's praying for other people, but yet he's submitting himself knowing that he is finite and he knows that he is completely bound by God's sovereign will. Several times in the book of Acts, in Paul's missionary journeys, it says, Paul's saying, I was on my way to this place and the Holy Spirit intervened and said, nope, go this way. Right? One time he was in Corinth and he was going to leave there, or he was scared. He was thinking about leaving there in Acts chapter 18, and the Holy Spirit comes to him and says, stay here in this city because I have many people here. Paul was a man who was submitted to the sovereign will of God, and the sovereignty of God, Paul's exhaustive view of the sovereignty of God in all things, notice, did not produce in him an apathy or a laziness, rather it fueled his passion to take the gospel wherever it would go. That's why he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 somewhere, maybe chapter 2 somewhere in there, I don't have it up on the screen, but he says, I am willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect. In other words, those that God has put his love on in eternity past, who he will bring to faith and he is guaranteed to do so, I'm going to do everything to bring that about. Not because I know God's sovereign and he knows tomorrow, so I'm just going to sit back and have Cheetos. I am going to get after it because God is sovereign. Oh, there's more to that. And there's a whole lot more truth. And that's a whole lot better point than you're making on. But i got to move on. 
Friends, let's just consider how this truth applies to our everyday lives. That the Christian life should be a thankful life and we can come to our God through Jesus to a sovereign God who controls all things. Friends, if you're a Christian, consider all that God has done for you in Christ, regardless of the situation. Let's remember the context. Paul is writing to a Roman church that is ramping up for some of the worst persecution in the history of the church, where this man named Nero will be the emperor of Rome, and about a decade from the time that this letter is written, will skin Christians alive and burn their bodies in Rome to light the streets. And Paul is writing to these people, and in the midst of even ramping up persecution and all of the horrible things that would go on to be a Christian in the life of a Christian in that time, Paul is saying, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because God is in control. And Paul's confidence and his gratitude in who God was, was not circumstantial. He knew the great promise that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew 16 where he says that upon this rock, speaking of Peter's confession of faith, I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, so don't buy into the gloom and doom of whatever's happening out there. God is in control, and that should produce gratitude and thankfulness in us. And let's not just think about it on a global 30,000-foot level. Let's think about it on an interpersonal level. I just think as we look at this, Paul thanking God for these other Christians. I look at the first chapter of 1 Corinthians where Paul does the same thing and he thanks God for the Corinthian church and then he spends the next 14 chapters lambasting the Corinthian church for their carnality but he starts off by thanking them. I am chastened by that because Paul is thankful for jacked up people. So let's even just apply that personally, right? We should be, because of the gospel, because of the work of the gospel in our lives, and because of the work of the gospel in the lives of fellow Christians, we should be loaded up with confidence in the work of God in one another's lives. But I just, I notice in my own heart, and sometimes in some of our hearts, it just seems like some people, I think, have the spiritual gift of projecting disappointment. You know what I'm talking about? They're just such a joy to be around. It's like, what's your spiritual gift? Pessimism. (laughs) Great, let's go to lunch. We should reject that. The Christian life is a thankful life. Let's move on. The Christian life is a dependent life. Look at verse 11. It's a dependent life. For I long to see you. Remember who's writing this now. The Apostle Paul who through his hand comes half of the New Testament. Kid had the juice card, right? I mean, he knew the Bible. He was gifted. I mean, the volcano that Martin Lloyd-Jones says through much of the Bible came through. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Verse 12, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and, my, yours and mine. Take note there of Paul's humility. He's going there knowing that he wants to share, he wants to impart, he wants to bless, he wants to 
pour out. He wants to give something to the Romans, to these ordinary Christians. I think recognizing that he is being used by God in a magnificent, unusual way. But he doesn't insist like for a parking space or an entourage or whatever. He's not big time in it. You know, I need a fruit tray and Aquafina water when I come to minister to you. And my own little green room to you know, sit in before the service and all this kind of stuff. And I need to be put up in the best hotel. No, Paul, he catches himself mid-sentence. He says, like, I'm coming to pour. Wait, that is also that you, ordinary Christian, may also edify me. That's the heart of this humble man, Paul. And it makes me think and realize that every Christian is gifted for the sake of ministry to the body, for the building up of the body. Listen to what Peter, the apostle, writes in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. He says, as each of you, speaking to all Christians, as each of you has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Do you know that if you have been made alive by God, if you have been reborn by the sovereign grace of God, I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your limitations are. I don't care how much of the Bible you still do not yet know. I don't care how deep of a hole you were in before you came to Christ. I don't care whether you got any church history in you or not. If God has made you alive and has caused you to be born again through the work of his son, if he's moved on your heart and he has regenerated it, that's a theological term meaning bringing it back to life. If he has done that, he has also given you gifts for you to use for the sake of the building up of the body of Christ. Every single Christian. So let's just take a moment here to consider how we are to go about discovering what these may be, these gifts that God has given us in our lives. Well, a couple verses to spur us on in this direction. Colossians 3 verse 16, Paul says to another letter, to another church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There should be this culture of admonishment, encouragement, where we're speaking encouragement and exhortation into one another's lives so as to draw these things out of one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul writes to another church, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Admonish the idle. Another way we might say that is, is maybe some Christians need a kick in the rear and a push into realizing that you are gifted in some way. Hebrews 10 verse 23, picking up where Will read for us at the beginning of service. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Listen to verse 24, and in the context of us thinking about our spiritual gifts and using them in the church, and let us consider how to stir, one, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that means that we have a collective responsibility towards one another to be sort of 
gift discovers and say, hey, I see that in you. Use that more, man. God has gifted you in that way. Do that. We have a collective responsibility to do that. And also notice what he says at the end of that text in verse 25. Don't neglect gathering together. You can't really be a fruitful gift-using Christian if you show up and are only minimally part of the church and show up once every quarter. I'm not here to beat you up, man. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that. Notice this picture of how to do life together in the New Testament is often so different from what we consider acceptable in American church culture. I'll just take the silence as conviction of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Um, <clears throat> it made me think of uh, we would go, we still do go home to California to where I'm from once a year and when the, our oldest boys were little we went to this money trap <clears throat> called Legoland, um, which is uh, a little theme park, North County, San Diego. 50 bucks to get in, <laughs> whatever. Uh, and we pay all this money, and the boys at that time, our two oldest boys, would just make a beeline to this one thing. It was a dinosaur dig. And they didn't want any part of all these rides. They just wanted to go to this little dinosaur bone dig where basically it was just a bunch of sand over some, you know, little dinosaur, like fake dinosaur bones. And they, they could be like, you know, the excavator, you know, give you a little hat and a little tool. It was really cool. It was a neat, neat, neat thing for a kid. And I thought about how life in the local church, it, we should be like that. We should be like spiritual archaeologists in each other's lives. And we're constantly, our, our interaction with one another should be like we're digging underneath the surface. Like there's something, there's something in there, right? There's something in you. Come on, bring it out. Let us see it. Use it for the glory of God. Let's, let's do this. Let's consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. Just a few practical steps before we move on to the final point. First, a thought about spiritual gift inventories and questionnaires that are really popular um, in our culture today. I, I'm not against them. I think that they certainly have been used as a helpful tool for some people. I will say that I, I, I think they have some drawbacks. One is that these lists, like where you take a little test and you sort of self-identify all the things that you're good at. Um, first is that they tend to be based on the lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible, like in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 12. And there's about 20-something spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. Those are not intended by the, by the Holy Spirit as these Bible writers wrote these lists to be exhaustive lists. And so you may be working through that and you're like, oh gosh, I don't, I don't really see you know, any gift that I have. Every Christian has been gifted in some way. And the New Testament does not give us an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. And the second thing is, is that I don't know that just the isolated sort of taking that questionnaire self sort of examining your heart is necessarily in the vein of how the New Testament pushes us towards how we should together help one another stir ourselves up to love and good works, right? We should be people that are constantly on a archaeological spiritual dig to uncover the spiritual gifts in one another, putting aside our selfish ambitions for the sake of of the glory of God in the life of the local church so that we are dependent on one another. Another just little mental picture for you. I think that the local church is like a tree 
Every local church is like a tree. And God intends for the fertilizer of your gifts, whatever they may be, to be used to make the soil around that tree healthier so that it might bear greener leaves and sweeter fruit so that an onlooking world can taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34. That's what the life of a local church should be like. And like should be like. And I think that your gifts, let me just mention this. I think that your gifts, not exclusively, but primarily, should be pointed towards and aimed at other Christians in this local church because the Bible is full of exhortations to people together in a community who are gathered together, who have a responsibility together towards one another. Of course, we have a general love and responsibility towards all people in general and certainly to all Christians and certainly even to all Christians in our area and in our city. But God intends for each local church to be a kind of prioritized spiritual archaeological excavation site of love and mutual care where we are spurring one another on, where we are caring about the fruit that we produce, and we are just one tree in God's orchard in this city, in this state, and in this country. But the best thing that we can do is not scurry around from place to place, always being on the distance, sampling fruit from that tree, this tree. Well, I like the music here. The The best thing we can do is give ourselves to the life of one local tree, one local church, and be part of God's magnificent orchard for the sake of the glory of the kingdom of God amongst the nations. The Christian life should be a dependent life. And finally, the Christian life is an obligated life. Look at what Paul says in verses 14 and 15. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. That that phrase, you know, you think of barbarian. Most of us think of Conan the barbarian. (laughs) That was a sports thing. I don't know who played that back in the early 80s. It's just a, a, a phrase speaking of just Gentile peoples. I am under the obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Two things that I want us to see here as we look at how Paul viewed the Christian life as an obligated life. First, let's start with verse 15. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And notice that Paul is presupposing that the recipients of this letter are already Christians, but yet he says, I want to preach the gospel to you. That tells me that Christians need the gospel too. The gospel is not just a set of facts that we must agree to theologically or mentally or cognitively to secure our future destiny, and then we move on to the real nuts and bolts of the Christian life. No, no, that is a wrong conception that many Christians have. The gospel is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to make us alive, to sanctify us, to preserve us, to 
get us to the end and to glorify us on that day. And what Jesus has done on the cross to bear and remove the punishment of sin applies every day to the life of the Christian as we take God's side against our remaining sin and remember who we are in light of what Christ has done for us. This is how Tim Keller A pastor in New York City puts it very helpfully. He says that the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel And then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. This is how Paul puts it in Colossians 2 verse 6. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, in other words, by grace, through trusting in his finished work on the cross and his victorious resurrection, so walk in him. So it's not like you start with this news and then you move on to other stuff. That's what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 3, verse 1. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Another translation says, who has cut in on you? Who tripped you up? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, in other words, by grace, by believing the gospel, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, you began with the gospel of grace, Galatians, and now you act like you've got to move past that and do other stuff to secure and hold on to your right standing with God. And Paul is saying, no, it's the gospel that saved you, it's the gospel that is sanctifying you, and it's the gospel that will preserve you to the end. And friends, we need to remember this because we, as Christians, all of us, suffer from gospel amnesia. And that's another reason we need life in the local church because we need to to be like an echo chamber of reminding one another about the gospel of grace. Am I the only one that has gospel amnesia or do we have a few other sufferers in here? Isn't it? Okay, one or two. All right, great. Let's form a little self-help society after the... I mean, friends, it's it's amazing. I believe with my whole heart in everything this Bible says. And it's amazing the heights that my heart can soar to in worship when we gather together. And even sometimes in the middle of preaching, the joy and the confidence and the resolve that I can feel burning in my soul and in my heart will almost cause me to explode. And then Thursday happens. And I am shocked often and dismayed at how small my universe can shrink to when on the previous Sunday it was soaring in the glories of God. Friends, it reminds me that we need an obligated life to be with other Christians and depending on one another, and we need the gospel too. But then finally, I think what Paul is meaning here when he says in verse 14 that I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, I think it's important for us to understand what he means by that. 
Paul saw himself as under obligation to preach the gospel, but in what sense? I think instinctively, sometimes we think that we are under obligation to God. In fact, maybe we've even sort of used this reasoning on our own hearts or have been, uh, we've been, uh, there's been an attempt to motivate us in service to God by a sense of obligation. Like, God did this for you. He gave up his son for you now. Youth rally on a Thursday night before you go home. What will you give to God? And all the kids respond, like, yes, 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 I got to give something. I mean, he gave me all this. Now I got to give. And we, we all kind of understand that thinking instinctively, don't we? The problem with it, it is completely unbiblical. In a year or so, when we get to Romans 11, verse 35, it says, Who, <laughs> who has given him a gift? that he might be repaid. If grace puts us under obligation, it's not grace. God's work in our life is free. We could never make up for what he has done for us. We are not under obligation to God. We are not beholden to mercy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be mercy. Salvation is free. Nothing in my hands I bring, the hymn writer says. Simply to that cross I cling. So who was Paul under obligation to? He wasn't under obligation to God. He was under obligation to his fellow man. Because he has received this free grace. Now he's the carrier of this grace to other people that need it. And he now is obligated to share it with them. Put this picture in your mind. Think of a, think of a colony of starving beggars out, lost in the woods, wandering around aimlessly, looking for bread, and there is no bread. And one beggar, not because he's smarter than the other one, just happens to be hallucinating in his hunger. It's kind of like the third phase of ranger school. You're still hungry. Start picturing candy bars hanging from the trees. And we got a couple guys starting ranger school here in a week or so. I'm sorry, guys. I'm just sorry. Picture one beggar who's just kind of wandering around away from the herd of starving beggars in the woods. And somebody comes up to him from a faraway city full of all that the heart could desire. And he says, here is all the bread that you can eat. Take, receive, and be satisfied. And that Hungry, starving better, beggar eats bread to his heart's content. What would we then say about that beggar who has now been satisfied if he does not go back to his colony of starving beggars and say, brothers, sisters, through the woods is a kingdom full of all the bread 
we can eat. We would say about that beggar who received food by grace that he is now under obligation to bring the bread to his fellow beggars. I've been chastened by the first two weeks. I've been criticized. I've been mocked. I've been vilified. I've been emailed. I've been scolded for not having Spurgeon quotes for the first two Sundays of Romans. I didn't do that because a brother that I love dearly and I trust his opinion, he said, Brad, maybe lay off on the Spurgeon quotes a little bit. But then I had another brother say, don't listen to him. Give it to us. (laughs) So I end with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Famous London pastor in the mid-1800s on this thought of how we now are graciously, gloriously obligated to one another. Listen to Spurgeon's heart for people who don't believe. And don't attribute this to some great champion of the faith. This is the heartbeat of the ordinary Christian. It should be the heartbeat of the ordinary Christian in the local church. It should be our collective heartbeat as a church. And before I read it, I don't, I don't want you to think that I'm saying or that Spurgeon is saying or that even the scripture is saying that every one of us is going to have a proclamation-type evangelistic ministry where we are the ones who are rescuing people individually from spiritual death. I'm saying that in the context of the Christian life as we live dependent and thankful and obligated lives together that God does something. He produces an aroma among us as a local church that is compelling to an onlooking world where they, by God's Spirit, are drawn to taste and see that the Lord is good. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Oh, that that heart would seize us as a church. And friends, if you, if you have maybe heard the gospel for the first time and God has opened up your eyes, friends, you need not go there. You may not understand it all, but as Paul began in verse 8, there is a God in heaven who's glorious and good, and he's not just a creator, he's a father, and he has made a way for a sinful, wicked person like me and you, not because you are good, not because you have to meet some standard before you're acceptable, but because of his son through Jesus, who bore his wrath 
on the cross for all of his people, rose again in victory, and now gives the very thing that he commands from you, which is faith. If God is causing the scales to fall from your eyes and the blinders to fall and the, the, your ears to be uncorked and your heart to finally beat, you don't need to do anything. You need to turn away from trusting in yourself and put your hope in his son Jesus so you can say, like Paul said, and like other believers in this room say, I thank my God through his son Jesus and you too can receive and eat all of the bread. The bread that will never make you hunger again. The bread that is Christ. Friends, look away from yourself if that is you right now. Don't wait for me to feed you a prayer. Right now, look away from yourself and say, Jesus, I put my hope and trust in you. Before you leave this room this morning, come and speak to somebody that you know to be a Christian. Me or one of the other pastors or just somebody that you know to love Jesus. And tell them, pray for me, help me, get me started on this journey to the kingdom where the bread never runs out and always satisfies. Jesus, the bread from heaven. Let's pray. Father, take these words and make us thankful people. Make us dependent people. Make us obligated people for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, and for the salvation of any that are in this room who do not know you. Do these things, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.